Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's podcast episode on pregnancy, nutrition, food safety, and healthy weight gain is brought to you by my friends at Cybex. Cybex has received more than 450 awards for design, safety, and innovation for their car seats and strollers. We can't wait for our little bundle to be here, and we've already installed our Cybex car seat and have our Cybex preamp all ready to go. You can check out the stylish range of Cybex products at cybex-online.com. That's C-Y-B-E-X-Online.com. Today's special guest is Stephanie Vallakis, who is recognized as a leading fertility and pregnancy dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist. Stephanie and her virtual practice are dedicated to excellence in nutrition for reproductive health concerns, fertility and pregnancy. Her passion for nutrition in this space has truly grown from her experiences helping her clients online all around the world and also through her own personal experiences of navigating a diagnosis of endometriosis. You can learn about how you can work with Stephanie and the dietologist team at thedietologist.com.au or follow them on Instagram. Their handle is at the underscore dietologist. You can also tune into Steph's own podcast, Fertility Friendly Food. In today's episode, Stephanie and I discuss food safety risks in pregnancy, omega-3 intakes, the safety of caffeine, protein powders, and hummus, healthy weight gain in pregnancy, and whether or not you can or should lose weight in pregnancy. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. I'm really excited to have you on today, sharing all of your wisdom with our listeners. Thanks so much for having me, Leah. No worries. And let's, I'd love to get our guests to start off by sort of introducing themselves and sort of saying um, to our listeners how you got into this area. So around, you know, fertility and pregnancy and nutrition. Yeah, um, I kind of got into it backwards. So I really wanted to be a children's dietitian when I first graduated. So I was working in pediatrics. I was seeing lots of little kids and fussy eaters and babies and Um, even teenagers and helping them with their nutrition and it's really interesting because I started to notice some of the eating behaviors that were happening in kids were kind of being tracked back to pregnancy and pre-pregnancy parental eating habits started to look into it a little bit more and then a great um, series of articles was published by The Lancet which is a really big scientific journal about how preconception health is I guess the ultimate preventative health and nutrition that we can be doing and I kind of got into pediatrics thinking that would be preventative nutrition. And so that really captured my attention. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is kind of history from from there in terms of then finding my way into that niche um, and really focusing on those um, first 1000 days of life. But really that preconception, fertility and pregnancy portion is where my passions lie. And I think a little bit compounded by my own like journey through understanding my own reproductive health um, and my own health concerns that kind of also led me to wanting to fill that gap for people that are experiencing things like PCOS and endometriosis and thyroid conditions and giving them evidence-based and compassionate nutrition care. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely one of those areas around nutrition that is just super, super rewarding to work in, isn't it? Yeah. 
so rewarding. Nothing better than a cute little baby picture in your emails on a Monday morning. <laughs> oh, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I just, I love seeing all the little, um, you know, how Instagram filters what you've been looking at lately. Of course, being pregnant, I'm clicking on all like the baby clothes and that yeah. sort of thing. So my Explorer page is just filled with like cute babies and the little clothes with the little headbands oh, on. And I'm like, I've got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> my feed looks like a whole lot of pregnant women, but that makes sense because of my job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So talking about pregnancy, when yeah. our listeners receive that, I guess like for most people, positive or life-changing news that they are pregnant. Mm. I know for a lot of us, particularly those early, you know, that first trimester, it actually comes with a lot of fear and anxiety. And I can definitely talk, you know, firsthand from that experience. I was so anxious within that sort of first 12 to 15 weeks. But food and nutrition is one thing that kind of adds to the anxiety element. There's so many things that you hear from a food safety and risk perspective in pregnancy. Um, what are, I guess, the general sort of rules or recommendations around food safety because it's something that so many of us struggle with and it does cause a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. Yeah. The simplest way that I like to explain it to my clients to minimize what I think can be an over over focus on what we can't be eating and trying to help shift them towards what they should be eating or what they can be eating um, is really important. So the way that I like to to write it out on my little Zoom whiteboard, so if you visualize with me for a second, is your first trimester nutrition should equal your preconception nutrition, subtract the high food safety risk foods in pregnancy. And that's your ideal starting point. Now, the reality is for a lot of people is first trimester is met with a lot of nausea, a lot of food aversions, constipation, and your normal diet is kind of out the window anyway, and you're subsisting on crackers and pasta and rice and hot chips. And that's so okay and normal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So don't feel stressed and anxious about that, but rather the food safety component is important and I think the message needs to kind of shift away from this fear-mongering tactic of these are all the foods you should be avoiding, which is important to know about and be cognizant of, but also shifting towards this view of there's lots of things that you can be eating to nourish yourself and support yourself during pregnancy and we should be focusing on those. So during pregnancy, you are more vulnerable to certain bacteria in food causing you an infection, specifically listeria which can have a negative impact for baby's health and development. And interestingly, salmonella, although you're not more likely to contract it during pregnancy, there is some potential risk that if you were to get salmonella through food, that the consequences aren't good for baby. So it's not that you're at an increased risk. It's just that impact is high. So when we talk about food safety, we're usually talking about two key things. Is your risk higher for getting sick mm-hmm. or is the impact high mm-hmm. if you were to get sick? Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of going up and down on those two metrics there. Um, however, when you're not pregnant, usually these things aren't anything to worry about unless you are immunocompromised. But pregnancy is a state of a slightly reduced immune system function, meaning it can be a little bit harder to fight off diseases and infection. Um, So we just really need to be mindful of these foods. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, some foods are going to be higher risk than others, and that's what we seek to avoid. But technically, like not to freak anybody out, but technically anything can get contaminated at Mm -hmm. any point Mm -hmm. in time. And that's why we have a 
you know, at least here in Australia, we have a really good way to recall foods and announce that to the public and ensure everyone is taken care of. But it's a good idea always to keep an eye out on your local food authority website or their social media pages, because even you can avoid all these foods that we're going to talk about, but even still, you may be exposed to listeria or salmonella unintentionally. Mm -hmm. um, And that can indeed happen. Obviously, we do actually need to eat in pregnancy, (laughs) so we can't be fearful of everything. So knowing those key high-risk foods to avoid and measures you can take to minimise your risk and eat freely from all food groups is really important to have a balanced and nutritious diet to support both you and baby. So, yeah, I guess that's a bit of an overview of some of the key things to give it some context. Um, But, yeah, we can get into the specifics of what foods to avoid and as well if you'd like. And I'd love to yeah, give our listeners that list because, as you said, we can do all of the right things. And if we do get sick or we do get food poisoning, it's honestly just bad luck at the end of the day. You know, no yeah. pregnant woman is actively going out there being like, how can I increase my risk of salmonella today? <laughs> like exactly. we're really just – it just comes down to bad luck, doesn't it? But I think that knowledge is power but not getting so, I guess, caught up on it does it that it does cause us so much stress and anxiety on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Just doing what we can and trying to be as, you know, healthy as possible and avoid those things that are sort of um, actively going to put us at a higher risk as much as we can. So from a nutrition perspective, what yeah. are the things that we're really looking to avoid or limit um, from a from a food perspective? Yeah. So there are a few like categories. So we've talked about salmonella and listeria, which are two bacteria that can potentially cause an infection, but there's other things that we can be exposed to during pregnancy that aren't necessarily always bacterial that can have a negative impact on pregnancy and baby. So really forgotten ones are toxoplasmosis. So it's not usually a food related thing, but it it can be if you're not cooking your meats well, or you're eating dirty fruits and vegetables um, that are homegrown where your cat has gone to the bathroom or you're changing your kitty litter and things like that. So that one's forgotten about often. Mm -hmm. Mercury is another one that's often forgotten about and the different fish species that contain more mercury than others. Alcohol, caffeine and vitamin A and high dose retinol. So it's not just bacteria, it's also potential toxins that we need to also have a think about as well. So keeping all that in mind, here's, here's my list and it is important to note before I go into this list that each government And even each state or territory will have different recommendations for pregnancy, what to avoid. Um, I know in the US in particular, it is actually quite different because of their food standards are different to ours. So just, yeah, grain of salt, check with your OB or your dietitian or your um, local food authority to confirm, but I'm working off a uh, base of Australia um, to for this list. So the first one's alcohol. There's no safe level of alcohol for pregnancy. And ideally, it's something we want to try and minimize or reduce to as close to zero as possible in preconception as well. Excess caffeine. So we want to stick to 200 milligrams per day or less. Um, so it depends on where you get your coffee from. Uh, mm. I know there was a, like, a, not a study, but a little experiment that was done. I think it was in Brisbane where they looked at different cafes and they showed that the caffeine content of a single espresso shot can vary from 
80 milligrams per shot to 120, 150 milligrams per shot. So, and some places do double shots without you knowing. So important to just keep that in mind if you're getting takeaway. You can have some caffeine. It doesn't need to be zero. I know there's been a lot of conversation about that recently, but certainly trying to stick to as close to zero as possible and knowing that decaf is about 1% of the normal caffeine level. So if it's got 100 milligrams, decaf's 1%, so it's 1 milligram. Um, So that's quite low. Other sources of caffeine that people forget about, black and green tea, including matcha, chocolate, energy drinks, and some sports products as well can contain decent amounts of caffeine. So keep all those in mind as well. Other things to avoid are raw or pre-cooked seafood. So no sashimi, no sushi, no pre-cooked prawns, no oysters. You can cook something like a prawn from fresh at home and eat it hot. That's fine. But everything else uh, in the pre-cooked category is off limits. Mercury-rich fish. Again, it's going to vary depending on where you live, but some key species to look out for is shark or flake, um, swordfish, orange roughy, catfish, king mackerel, marlin, broadbill, big, big fish. I get a lot of questions about tuna and tin mm-hmm. tuna in particular. So there's two key varieties of tuna that uh, are typically in our tins of tuna, skipjack tuna and yellowfin tuna. Skipjack tuna is slightly smaller and also, a little side bonus, is slightly more rich in omega-3 fatty acids as well versus your yellowfin tuna. So my preference is to limit to two small tins, two 90-gram tins of tuna per week during pregnancy or other tinned fish um, and ideally opting for a skipjack variety if you can. Um, but other than that, merc- uh, the mercury content of tuna is not considered as high compared to those other species of fish that we just mentioned. And certainly things like salmon um, and smaller fish are not to be worried about. We're talking about very large fish. Other things, pre-chopped fruit and vegetables. This one gets people really confused because mm-hmm. they're like, hang on, <laughs> I thought I meant to be eating lots of fruit and vegetables during pregnancy. What do you mean? Pre-chopped meaning a pre-chopped fruit salad. Pre-chopped meaning um, uh, a half of a rock melon that's cling-wrapped or glad-wrapped in the supermarket. Those things are no-goes. Here's why, and people often ask me why, because it seems so much more convenient when you're feeling really nauseous, you don't want to meal prep anything, you don't want to chop anything, maybe you don't have your partner's help in the kitchen. It's so much more convenient to just grab things pre-chopped. But most places aren't going to wash the outside of a fruit or vegetable before they slice through it, Um, especially if you don't eat the skin, for example, a rock melon or cantaloupe or a watermelon, for example. So when they go and cut through that skin, which may be contaminated, can then contaminate the cross section as you slice through and then that's sitting there populating in kind of almost room temperature um, so you can kind of see where the food safety risk comes in there. Similar with vegetables, it's fine to buy all these things whole, wash everything thoroughly, even if you don't eat the skin of it. So I always tell my clients, how do you cut an avocado? Oh, yeah, I cut it through the skin and I cut it and hit the seed and round we go. And I'm like, yeah, cool. So what's your knife doing? 
Oh, right. It's going from the skin through the flesh. Yeah. So I'm just, as soon as you get home from the supermarket, just dump everything into like the laundry sink or get a big bucket, wash it. If you want, chuck some bicarb soda in there, get a little bit of pesticides off as well. And even if it's something that you never eat the skin of, just do that anyway. Um, things like pre-bagged spinaches and lettuces, even if they're saying washed and ready to use, my recommendation is to rewash um, when you go to eat or buy the loose if you can. Salad bars and buffets, so things like your Subway style, your salad bars, sandwich bars, sandwiches that sit in the window at a shop. Basically, I always tell my clients when you're pregnant, you basically got your princess hat on. Everything needs to be made fresh for you uh, from freshly refrigerated ingredients wherever possible. Sometimes that makes eating out a little bit more challenging. You have to ask more questions. Don't feel like you're being a nuisance. You're just doing what you need to do, and I think that's really important. Um, Leftovers, don't eat anything that's more than 24 to 48 hours old. The recommendation differs depending on who you ask. Um, Leftovers can be cooled and reheated back up to over 60 degrees Celsius, but once that's done, if it's reheated and you eat it and you don't finish it, the rest is rubbish. You can't eat cool it and reheat it again um so that's really important mm-hmm. anything that sits out at room temperature for too long the way I get people to think about this is visualize you know a Christmas celebration or a holiday birthday where potato salad sits in the sun for four hours with mayonnaise that's a no-go so things that are sitting in that temperature danger zone of five degrees Celsius to 60 degrees Celsius because we know that's where bacteria are going to most rapidly replicate um that's really important. So we want to keep hot foods hot above 60 degrees Celsius and cold foods cold below 5 degrees Celsius and we want to avoid that transition time between hot to cold to be too long. So leftovers shouldn't sit on the stove till you've finished eating dinner and having a chat and watching TV and then packaging up your leftovers for the next day for work and then sitting on the bench for another hour before you put in the fridge. That's a no-no. When you're pregnant, serve everything up pop into your containers, cover straight into the fridge, get it cool as quickly as possible. So even if it's hot, you recommend putting it straight into the fridge? Straight into the fridge, yeah. Yep. Um, meats that aren't cooked through, meat and chicken and fish and any flesh. I mean, I, I hope everyone's cooking their chicken, <laughs> whether pregnant or not. That is critical. <laughs> but no medium rare steak has to be cooked through, and that's, again, that toxoplasmosis risk. Eggs with runny egg Yolks um, certainly are no-go. Egg white and yolk has to be cooked through, so no poached eggs and products containing raw eggs, so homemade mayo, homemade aioli, um, meringues that haven't been cooked and so on. So just keep all that in mind. Um, Chocolate mousse is probably the one that gets most people because a lot of people forget that you start with a meringue and it's just refrigerated, it's never cooked. Um, So that's an important one unpasteurized foods so unpasteurized foods are things like soft serve ice cream or raw milk so like from the farm fresh milk most countries are not allowed to sell unpasteurized milk on the shelf because of the bacterial risk some cheeses however can be unpasteurized and sold so some goat's cheeses are unpasteurized some fetters are unpasteurized and any soft cheese that contains mold 
brie, camembert, gorgonzola, um, and even uncooked ricotta um, are a no-go. So if you're going to have ricotta, has to be cooked. If you're going to have feta or halloumi, pasteurized. If it's goat's cheese, double-check it's pasteurized before eating. So that's important on that front. Foods too high in vitamin A. This one gets a lot of pushback, I'm noticing, particularly on Instagram at the moment, about liver and offal because they are containing a high amount of vitamin A, which is a fat-soluble vitamin, which in very high levels can have a negative impact on babies' development and create congenital defects. So the recommendation still remains by the government is to avoid these types of foods. So this is offal, liver, pate, and vitamins that contain pre-formed vitamin A or retinol. I get a lot of people sending me terrified emails of, oh my God, my prenatal vitamin contains vitamin A. But then when you read it, it says as beta carotene. Your body knows what to do with beta carotene. It won't overly convert it into vitamin A. So that's fine. But we're talking about retinol. Mm -hmm. And even retinol skincare products are generally advised to discontinue as well. So check your skincare as well. Liver is undoubtedly an excellent source of lots of different nutrients and iron and things that we need in pregnancy, but they're also much more likely to be contaminated with bacteria and they're also, you know, you are potentially rolling the dice there on the vitamin A. So my advice is to avoid um, unless you've been advised otherwise. The new one at the moment is tahini and raw sesame seeds. So this one shocked all the hummus lovers. <laughs> Myself included. Yeah, because hummus generally, when commercially produced, contains tahini to, to make it. So um, there were some new um, recommendations released showing that raw sesame seeds and tahini, which is a sesame seed paste usually made with raw sesame seeds, may uh, be contaminated with salmonella. Again, it's not something that springs to mind when you think of salmonella. You always think of eggs and, and you know, bad takeaway, um, not sesame seeds. So um, it's really important to, yeah, like check out your local food authority list and have a conversation with your healthcare provider so you're up to date with what the latest developments are. Mm -hmm. The other one that tends to surprise people is sprouts, so things like bean sprouts and mung beans and alfalfa and snow pea sprouts. Um they're incredibly moist in their packaging and so oftentimes they are a higher risk from a bacterial perspective unless they are absolutely cooked to oblivion, which in most culinary contexts don't happen. If you think about a pad thai that comes with bean sprouts, they're never really like cooked into mush. They're, they're just kind of thrown on top. Only nice when they're crunchy anyway, right? You wouldn't want to cook them to oblivion. <laughs> exactly. I couldn't imagine. Soggy sprouts. Like, yeah, not, not pleasant. Processed meats, I get so many questions about this one. Oh, is it okay if I have some salami on my pizza? Now, in theory, like if you look at the food authority, they say yes. If it's heated to very hot and you eat it quickly after, it's okay. In my opinion, I have a background in microbiology, so I studied food poisoning for a very long time <laughs> before I became a dietitian. I, having knowing what I know from my microbiology background, this would be the one thing that I would just tell people, just don't eat it. If you can avoid it, just don't eat it. Um, salami, ham, bacon, slightly different, but again, it's not nutritious. 
it's going to contribute to higher amounts of saturated fat in your diet and a lot of salt as well, whilst delicious, um, certainly not doing you any favours from a pregnancy health perspective. And just the bacterial risks, are, they're, they're high. So I would really give that a swerve if you can at all avoid it. Um, the other ones that I get lots of questions about are fermented foods, mm-hmm. things like kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, um, even kefir. So I put kombucha, kimchi, and sauerkraut in one group, and then I put things like kefir and yogurt um, in another group. So kombucha, kimchi, and sauerkraut I recommend avoiding. Um, reason being is the SCOBY, which is that symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast, are yet to 100% be characterised by scientists to know exactly what every strain of bacteria and yeast is in there. Now, how much of that is ending in the end product? We usually don't know. And there's also a small risk of something like alcohol being produced as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. Most kombucha companies are testing each batch that doesn't contain any alcohol, but there's always a risk that, you know, if left unrefrigerated, things can ferment further and you don't know about it before it ends up in your hands at the service station or at the gas station. My advice is if you can avoid it, avoid it. If you've accidentally drunk some in your pregnancy, probably don't stress about it. I think <laughs> the, the, the risk is probably extremely low, but that would be my suggestion. And it's the same with kimchi and sauerkraut. It's not a starter that we know is what's in it. Versus something like kefir, it's a very known like group of bacteria that gets used um, and we know that they're safe. Um, same with yogurt. Um, so I wouldn't stress about those two products. Um, and then excess sugary and treat foods. I mean, it's not a food safety thing, but more of a nutrition thing. The more, you know, uh, energy rich but nutrient poor foods we eat in our diet the less room there'll be for the nutritious stuff which is what uh, we kind of need so that's another thing to just keep in mind as well wonderful very thorough list thank you that definitely I was finding myself nodding and nodding and going yep I didn't find that out till you know x amount of weeks or especially the hummus one I think I only found that yeah. about maybe 28 weeks and I put it on my stories. I was like, I think I had an apple and some hummus and some veggie sticks for afternoon tea. And somebody messaged me and was like, I thought hummus wasn't allowed in pregnancy. I was like, totally fine. Just did a quick Google in case. And I was like, oh crap. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I was like, oh, all the mums have to make you know, tahini free hummus at home. Exactly. And I was like, I don't have time to make my own hummus from scratch. No. So out it goes. <laughs> Give me the guacamole. I was like, I'll just dip my carrots into peanut butter instead. I'm done. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. And so just to clarify, you were saying that every fruit and veggie should be washed. Yeah. Um, just in terms of what we're washing it in, you said we could add a little bit of bicarb. Mm. It's just washing it in plain water. Like I normally just wash my fruits and veggies under the tap. Yeah. Does the water have to be a certain temperature? Should we be adding anything to it or just is tap water okay? Tap water is fine. I think that's like what everyone should be doing and then bicarb is a nice little extra if you'd like to kind of reduce the pesticide load if you're not buying organic for example um yeah that's all you really need I mean there's heaps of commercial like fruit and vegetable washes and things like that but 
I don't think they're really necessary. Yeah. And you mentioned um, pre-cut salad mixes. That was something that I was like, I love nothing more than my salad. Like everyone who listens to me knows I eat salad like multiple, multiple times a day. Like most dietitians, I was so fearful of eating salad in the first like 12 to 15 weeks. Like I don't think I ate really any salad. Like it was just cooked veggies, if that. Plus the food aversions and the nausea, like blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Maybe I'm making excuses, but I was honestly so fearful of eating salad. So you mentioned Mm. pre-cut salads. Like I used to buy like the bag salad mixes, my favorite ones the you know Coles and Woolies do like the Asian slaw sort of mix I used to love that I haven't had that my whole pregnancy is that okay if we're washing it properly or are we are we still supposed to be avoiding that the pre-cut ones like the slaws I would avoid if you're talking like a plain bag of baby spinach you can just rewash and if you really want to be super good get your salad spinner out and give it a spin if you want but um I don't have a salad <laughs> at home it's just not a, it's not a gadget I have but yeah just a rewash even if it says wash and read to use of things like rocket and mixed leaves and baby spinach pre-cut things like your slaws and your kale slaws and things like that I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for it. Okay. I thought you were going to make my day for a second there, but alas, I will, oh, I'm sorry. I've got another seven weeks I can, <laughs> I can push through. <laughs> and you don't terms, have much to go now. Exactly. Home stretch, yeah. home stretch. And in terms of, I guess, the food safety risk that we were mentioning in those certain foods, mm. um, you mentioned a little bit about like cooking and preparing and that sort of thing. So I'm a big fan of meal prep and mm. I get a lot of people asking me in terms of my meal prep. So I'm still doing my meal prep. As you said, I'm putting it straight into the fridge. And basically what I used to do is leave my meal prep in the fridge for kind of four or five days. I used to be quite proud of my, you know, iron stomach. It was mm. fine. But now I basically will put everything into the freezer. And even if I'm just eating it two days later, I'll bring it out to defrost. Is that what you recommend if people are fans of meal prepping? Like we shouldn't be leaving our own cooked food in the fridge. I mean, I'd never eat like leftovers from Chinese three days later. Like I'd never do that, even if I wasn't pregnant. Yeah. But my own meal prep, if I know how it's cooked and prepared and put straight into the fridge, normally I would. But in pregnancy, I've been sort of putting it straight into the fridge freezer if I'm not going to eat it the very next day. Is that your recommendation as well? Yeah, that's right. So there's some general food handling measures that you can take in pregnancy when you're preparing your own meals, whether it be for meal prep or otherwise. I think just it's the stuff that we all know we should be doing, but just as a refresher. So Things like washing your hands before you do your prep with warm soapy water, hand hygiene, important. Ensure your chopping board and your food preparation tools are all clean. Um, wash all your fruits and veggies if you haven't done already, even if you don't eat the skin. Like we said, that slice through component can contaminate. Um, prepare your produce first if you can, like your fresh fruit and veggies and things like that, before you then go to your meats, um, in particular to avoid cross-contamination of raw meat with especially raw vegetables um, and cleaning down between your preparation of each. Um, Ensure all those foods that need to be cooked through are cooked through eggs, meat, fish, chicken, shellfish, all that good stuff to reduce your food safety risks. Leftovers, like we said, wrapped and refrigerated right away. Don't leave them on the bench to come to room temperature. We want to keep them cold or hot and try to reduce that time in between and consume leftovers within 24 hours of cooking if refrigerated. If frozen, you can go longer. That's fine. Um, And when you're ready to eat, make sure you're reheating to hot above 60 degrees Celsius. Now, I get a lot of clients, especially in the first parts of pregnancy, where the smell of food when you reheat is really strong. And a lot of them ask me, hey, is it cool if I just eat this cold, which is totally fine. 
you don't necessarily need to reheat it. it if you want to eat it cold, it's fine, as long as you're not leaving it out at room temperature again and just letting it come to room temperature. That's important. Um, and the same rules apply. If you don't eat the remainder of it, even if it's cold, it needs to go in the bin. Um, other things that people sometimes forget is if you're working from home and you're a bit busy and you pop your lunch in the microwave from the freezer to kind of reheat and you're reheating it to hot and then somebody calls you and you're on the phone for half an hour and then you're like, oh, my gosh, I forgot my lunch in the microwave, that process of heating and then cooling again and then it's sitting there, that's a risk. So just being on top of it, don't let things sit where in a – temperature zone that could be suboptimal hot things hot cold things cold that's the best quick thing to always remember you don't necessarily need to sit there and take the temperature of things but just know hot things keep them hot cold things keep them cold and you should be good great and i just wanted to ask you do you feel oh is there research or evidence behind the the risk being higher in the first trimester and lower in the last trimester or is the risk kind of the same the whole way through pregnancy it's really interesting. I was doing some extra research before I came on here, even though I knew it. I was just like, I'm just going to do a little refresh, make sure that nothing has changed in um, this arena. So um, this is really interesting, but actually the risk is higher in the third trimester for listeria. Mm. So it was about a third of listeria cases that occur in pregnancy, which are already rare, by the way are occurring in the third trimester and a third are also completely asymptomatic as in no symptom at all. So you may not feel sick. And interestingly, a lot of people feel as though if you don't feel classic food poisoning sick, then you're out of the woods, but that's not actually how it works. So with listeria, you can range from asymptomatic, like I said, to mild flu-like symptoms. So not things like necessarily gut upset things like fever chills body aches sometimes diarrhea upset stomach but even things like headaches confusion poor balance um, and that can be from the time you eat it to up to two months after that oh, wow. food has been consumed it's a very long period of time and I don't know about you but I forget what I ate yesterday <laughs> I would not remember what potential food could have contaminated the, my diet two months ago. So I know that even if you don't feel unwell and you know that you've eaten a food that is very high risk in terms of listeria or a food has been recalled for listeria or you've been notified that there's been listeria in the place that you ate, um, things like that, it is always just a good idea just to go to your doctor, whether it be your primary care doctor, your GP or your obstetrician, and just say, hey, I think I might have been exposed. What do I do? There is a workup that they can do and there is things that they can do to help if you think that that has happened. Um, I have clients who have had traditional food poisoning, not listeria, in pregnancy. does happen. It's not common. Um, thankfully, no poor outcomes. But Eating out is uh, yeah, particularly interesting, um, especially things that people, the traditional food poisoning things like rice, for example, that's just mm -hmm. pre-cooked and sits in a rice cooker and gets dished out. 
or is used in fried rice because they're using three-day-old rice and things like that to give that fried rice texture, which is amazing, but when you're pregnant, it's not good. So there's lots of little things that can happen, and it's certainly rare. We're talking about listeriosis in Australia is about three cases per million people. Mm. It's not a lot. Mm -hmm. About one in six of those occur in pregnant women. Um, However... On the flip, whilst it's rare, the consequences are dire. So one in five of those pregnant women, um, it's there's a there's a fatal outcome. So that's what the that's what I was saying about risk and impact. The impact is high. That's why we talk about it so much because mm. we don't want that to happen. And we have seen that since we've implemented food safety in pregnancy um, education, that the rates of listeriosis in pregnancy have dropped and the rates of um, infants affected by listeriosis has dropped as well, which goes to show that, you know, whilst it is sometimes a scary thing to think about, an anxiety-inducing thing to think about, it is really important to know all these things and be up to date with these things because you never want to be that one in five. You don't want to be that number. Nobody wants to be that number. So um, whilst it's extremely rare, it's also hard for our bodies to keep on top of the cases because, like I said, that long lead time of up to two months after you eat a food, you're just presenting with flu-like symptoms or no symptoms at all, they might not even think to even look for listeria in that situation. So it's really, really, really tricky. Um, Another statistic um, was that over a period of nine years here in Australia from 2001 to 2010, there were 14 deaths reported due to listeria of babies so it's obviously tragic to even think about that but over nine years in terms of the how many births there would have been it's it's considered extremely rare um but yes the risk is actually higher in the third trimester than it is in any other trimester the cases that are more likely to occur are in the third trimester and I think I don't know if it's an immune system thing, but my hunch would be that it's because people feel like they're out of the woods, so to speak, Mm. and so they get more laxed um, as they go um, into pregnancy. So I think they take more risk than, say, in the first and second trimesters. That's what I think is happening personally, just having worked with so many people with pregnancy, but there could also be a physiological reason that I'm not aware of, like immune system responses changing and so on. Anyway, that was a really heavy topic to talk about so (laughs) but I think as well gives it some context yeah and I appreciate you going into it and I I definitely from my own personal experience have have sort of felt like oh I can not relax a little bit like of course I'm not actively going out there eating salami and eating sushi and that sort of thing but even the other day I I was trying a lot of mocktails we were off on our little baby moon and I got this amazing that we were at this really fancy restaurant they did non-alcoholic spirits which is actually very rare like generally you go to a Mm. restaurant and you get some sort of it's basically a fancy juice right and they call it a mocktail and I was like oh this is amazing (laughs) like it was a um it was a sour I don't know, Aperol thing. It was amazing. Yeah. And I was halfway through it and I was thinking, and I said to my hubby, this is so nice and frothy. And then my head went, you know how oh. cocktails get made frothy? You learned Raw this eggs. in food science like 10 years ago. It's <laughs> eggs. They use egg whites to make it frothy. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and so just those little things you just don't even think about. So listeners at home, frothy, yeah. non-alcoholic cocktails, not okay because they're made from raw eggs. <laughs> yeah. And like – I think it's these, uh, it's it's like even when we talk to people as dietitians in other contexts, things like celiac disease, et cetera, et cetera, 
food service staff aren't nutrition trained necessarily. And so they don't think like, oh, this person who is maybe or may not be visibly pregnant um, is asking for a mocktail. They don't think, (laughs) oh, they go, oh, yeah, that's alcohol free. They don't think about the raw egg white that they use to make it look all fancy when they give it to you. So keep like you have to kind of have your detective hat on all the time, which is so mentally draining. I totally get it. But important for sure. 100%. And I was sort of, I was just annoyed at myself because I knew that and I knew better. And I just, it didn't click till I was like, I don't know, 60, 70% through that mocktail. And I was like, damn it. But even then, like I'm visibly pregnant at the moment. Like I remember the, the, we're just saying, oh, this is exciting. What are you due? And it's just like, obviously that hadn't even crossed her mind when I ordered that mocktail either. So just, yeah, there's so many things. (laughs) Unless they've been pregnant themselves or they, you know, have had some kind of experience it's just going to fly over their head. So yeah, you have to be the one that's proactive about asking those questions. And I find I have like, I have dietitian friends who get pregnant and we all make the same mistakes. Like we're humans too, even though we know better, it still happens. And, you know, for the most part, you're going to be fine. If you're really concerned, there's always, you know, they always call your midwife or your doctor or whatever, have a conversation get tested if you're really concerned. I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think you brought up a really important point because honestly, I had no idea. And I was always of the assumption of, well, if I did accidentally eat something, like if I did, um, I remember I was saying to you just before we started this podcast, I got grilled once or twice. And then I realized that actually the salads that they're making the burgers from, are, you know, like just sort of kind of sitting at room temperature there and they're not taking them out of the fridge each time. So I was like, that's actually a food safety risk. But I definitely did have those burgers a couple of times in early pregnancy until I realized that. But I was always sort of of the opinion that unless I got sick, it didn't matter. Yeah. So that was a really important point that you made that you can actually be asymptomatic. Yeah. So I think that that's important for people to realize that you don't visibly, you don't have to have gastro or, or be vomiting or that sort of thing to actually have th- this increased risk um, in terms of some of these yeah. bacteria. With listeria, especially with salmonella, you will almost always be that traditional symptomatic 24 to 48 hours after exposure, 12 to 48 hours. You'll be traditionally food poisoning sick if you've got enough like bacterial load but with listeria it's so sneaky (laughs) it's so sneaky Mm. and you know pregnant women aren't the only people that can be infected be infected by listeria um uh, people who are elderly people who are immunocompromised had transplants different cancer therapies they also have to be aware of these things as well and so um it's just as tricky for them to navigate um in terms of trying to monitor for symptoms and so on. So, yeah, it's a little bit different because we think if we can get sick from food, it's always the traditional, I guess, thinking that we're going to get food poisoning symptoms sick. Yeah. But that isn't actually always how symptoms of food infection present. I'm quickly interrupting this podcast to bring you a healthy break from today's episode sponsor, Cybex. Cybex offers car seats, baby carriers, kids' furniture, and strollers that are not only safe, but perfectly adapt to our urban lifestyles. Always challenging the status quo, Cybex has become not just a leader in child safety, but is seen as an innovative lifestyle and fashion brand. With its fresh approach, Cybex designs products for parents, integrating and balancing safety, design, and function. Our little bub is nearly here, and we cannot wait to have her in her new Cybex Cloud Q car capsule and Rose Gold Preamp. 
you can check out the stylish Cybex range at cybex-online.com. Now let's jump back into our podcast episode with Stephanie. And you were talking when you were mentioning the mercury levels of, you know, fish and seafood, you sort of said, you know, two cans of tuna a week should sort of be the recommendations. Mm. So if you're someone and I'm someone that loves to have, you know, salmon maybe once or twice a week, would that sort of be my upper limit from a mercury perspective or would it be sort of like a tin of tuna plus one or two servings of salmon a week still be okay? Yeah. I Look, omega-3s are such a critical nutrient when we're talking about pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, and even postpartum nutrition. It is known to help support the baby's brain and eye development. It is known to even reduce the risk of preterm labor if we've got better omega-3 status, particularly earlier in pregnancy. Um, it's important for breast milk because that's what baby's, you know, omega-3 exposure will be. It's important in preconception. So, We definitely don't want to be fearful of fish. We want to avoid those big mercury fish, like we said. But if you're having salmon once or twice a week and a couple of tins of tuna from a mercury perspective, that's totally fine. But also if you're eating, if you're a pescatarian, you're eating a lot of fish, like Mm. you're eating fish every day, um, that's something that you want to factor in and have a look at what other proteins you can kind of mix in. So you're getting A, a balance of proteins and B, not you're not getting overexposed to even very, 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 very small amounts of mercury, but getting exposed consistently is something to consider. Now, I've got a curly question for you around protein powders in pregnancy, which I'm sure you, I don't know, you may or may not get asked. Yeah. I'm sort of, I've done my sports dietetic training and I, I work with a lot of ladies who are very active and, yeah. um, you know, I, for example, you know, early in pregnancy was just like carbs, 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 carbs. And then sort of around that 15 week mark, I was like, I just still couldn't stomach actual like animal based protein, even like a lot of the vegetarian sources. So I was like, well, I can have, you know, yogurts for breakfast. Maybe I'll just have, you know, a peanut butter sandwich and a protein powder and a carrot stick for lunch. And that's, you know, Mm. somewhat a little bit more balanced than just the peanut butter sandwich. But how do you feel about protein powders in pregnancy? Because I know a lot of it comes down to the additives that they add in and the type. So I know we don't really recommend the brown rice because um, the levels of some of the nutrients in there and where the rice was grown can be a bit tricky. Yeah sourcing and ingredients are the two key things there so ideally in an ideal world and we always paint the ideal picture don't we Mm. um we want to be achieving our protein intake intake through whole foods right however your diet looks in terms of whether you're omnivore vegetarian vegan pescatarian in theory we should be able to achieve adequate protein through our diet fish poultry meat legumes and beans nuts seeds tofu eggs especially. Reason being is they're also going to come with all the micronutrients that we also need to support us, right? Mm. Whereas uh, protein powder isn't. And in fact, it's really important that we don't choose a protein powder with lots of micronutrients, especially, and this really grinds my dietitian gears, is the pregnancy marketed protein powders. Because a lot of them, pregnant women just picking it up going, yep, it's a protein powder, getting on with their day. And they're getting, you know, equivalent levels of folic acid and iodine and other nutrients in addition to what they're taking in their prenatal supplement. And too much of a good thing can sometimes still can be not a good thing. Mm. So we need to not, like my preference is don't take anything that's got a micronutrient in it, a vitamin, a mineral, an iron, a zinc or something. It's not what you're taking it for. If you're going for protein, we want a protein powder. That's it. I generally, if I do use it with a client, which would be in some circumstances, it's individual. Um, It's not my preference, but, you know, when push comes to shove, we use the tools that we have. Whey protein-based is my preference. 
um, with as few additives as possible, sugars, artificial sweeteners, etc., um, and especially that micronutrient component. I'm not a big fan of the plant. Most of the plant-based proteins is a little bit of contaminant, heavy metal stuff. It makes me a little bit more... Are hesitant to use routinely in a pregnant woman so I'd be very yeah um, I'd be looking for maybe like a mix of a different plant-based protein sources in the one and yeah being really careful about sourcing so because of all those hoops and the fact that sometimes it's not that easy to find out all that information about a product up front um micronutrients and other ingredients that's easy they have to be upfront about that on a label but things like sourcing sometimes can be harder and contaminants even harder so my preference is if you can avoid needing them amazing that's my preference if you need one you know have a chat to your healthcare provider first and actually get one picked out that works in pregnancy for your situation and your dietary restrictions particularly if you're plant-based that's so interesting and they all like the majority of protein powders come with a warning label like either don't use in pregnancy or chat to your healthcare provider and I have um probably like most pregnant women have the you know the baby app where you track each week and it tells you how big the baby is and what vegetable the baby looks like that thing and there's a there's a thread in there where women ask questions and basically just other women replied to them and I was reading this one on protein powders the other the day and it had over like a hundred responses wow. and the general consensus on the app was basically like it's fine like it's protein powder like what harm could it do and I, I remember just jumping in and not saying I was a dietitian or anything but I was like I think that there's a reason that there's a warning label on these products mm. like even though you say like it's fine it's just protein like it's fine I give it to my kid and I was like again you shouldn't be giving these things to kids like no. it's considered a supplement like children shouldn't be having them either no but there were so many ladies being like I make smoothies and my two-year-old has it and oh. we're fine and I I think it's so hard when you're just getting advice from these apps, but when hundreds of women are saying exactly the same thing, like it's fine, it's fine, it makes you almost think, yeah, well, maybe it is okay because everyone's doing it and, you know, those people are fine. So it is really important to get particularly advice for pregnancy, such a vulnerable stage of your life, Mm. such an exciting but also vulnerable from qualified um, experts such as yourself, such as dietitians. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, people think that, protein because it's a macronutrient and it's found in our diet it's oh it's, it's natural. natural yeah it's natural and it's like sure <laughs> but the way we get it in that form in that powder that's not how we get it in food that's not how it's packaged up in our food um and very rarely is a protein powder ever just a protein you know, powder, yeah, protein yeah, yeah. isolate <laughs> and see you later because it tastes like not so good. So <laughs> um, it's really important to keep that in mind. And yeah, I think if if you think that you're really struggling with your protein intake, there's probably more workarounds that you can do in your diet first before you need to have a look at a protein powder in pregnancy. Great. And then we mentioned quickly early on the caffeine recommendations, which Mm. I've always sort of known as a dietitian, you know, 200 milligrams up to, but, you know, try to stay under. But I do know that there was a a, a sort of a larger study that came out earlier this year sometime. And I do know that between health professionals, between doctors, between OBs, 
the jury's out. You know, people are 50-50. It's yep. like we shouldn't have any. It's like alcohol. There's no safe upper limit. And then I remember talking to my OB. I used to have one standard shot a day from my local cafe. It was like my treat. I really look forward to it. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was doing up until about maybe 25 weeks when I sort of was reading this research or early, early 20 weeks. Mm. And I said to my OB and I was like, should I be cutting back? And the week before I saw him, I kind of tried to go nothing. And I, just from one shot a day, I was still having headaches. And I was like, oh, it's taking me so long to get going. So I sort of went down to about half a shot from my local cafe. Yeah. Um, and so what are your, I guess, opinions around caffeine? Because my OB was very much like, I'm still happy for you to have 200 milligrams. That's fine. Like you're doing everything else right. You're very low risk. But mm. I do know that there are some health professionals and some OBs out there as well who are currently recommending zero. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I think it is still a very, I guess, personal um, preference in terms of practitioners because they seem to be sort of one or the other because it wasn't really what I would call a high quality research and it didn't really have a definite opinion at the end of it, did it, or no. a definite um, sort of, um, you know, you must do this. It was sort of like, well, there's no safe upper limit, so you should yeah. maybe should do zero. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I remember when this study came out and every dietitian in this field was like, oh, my goodness, like do we need to completely change what we're recommending? Yeah. It wasn't until I read the paper myself that, I got my kind of scientist brain on and I was like, okay, it's a narrative review, which usually just means there's no new information, just means they're documenting to date what's happened in the literature. Mm -hmm. um, there was no meta-analysis, which is usually when they group all the data together and try to see if it's linked to a certain outcome. So they didn't do that, which is considered kind of the top of the pyramid when we're talking about um, evidence. And it was basically an author's opinion put forward that, you know, there may be some risks of, um, you know, even 100 to 200 milligrams of caffeine per day. So therefore, we pose that we should be changing the recommendations to zero or as close to zero as possible. And look, playing both sides of the field, is caffeine essential to existence? In your life, probably, but from a nutrition and, like, physiology perspective, we don't need caffeine to exist. It's not a vitamin. It's not a mineral. It's not a protein. It's not a carb. It's not a fat. It's not water. It's not fiber. We're going to live without it, you know? We're going to survive. It feels like we're not going to survive. Yeah, I was going to say, it might depend on who you talk to. Exactly. I'm right there with you. So just know I'm coming at it from a caffeine-loving perspective in my personal life. But on the flip side... This data didn't actually tell us anything that we didn't already know. Mm -hmm. um, and I have not seen any governing agencies, Rands Cog or, you know, big ACOG, any of the big ONG societies come out and change their stance on caffeine. Now, if you can make the switch and you want to, fantastic. Do I think that there's a significant risk of caffeine intake for the average pregnant woman to the outcome of the pregnancy? No, I really don't. Um, and I think you can have a think about, and the, the way that I always like to think about these things, whenever the research is kind of not really satiating what we need to know, is I always like to think about, okay, what's caffeine intake like in other countries in the world? that, you know, probably don't even think about these types of guidelines. Like I always think about I'm my family's from Greece. I always think about Greece, how much coffee they drink in Greece. It's a lot. <laughs> I just go, okay, well, I'm sure there's certain populations where caffeine intake is high, where if they knew for certain that it was absolutely causing an issue, we would 
have come out with that recommendation. I think what we would need to do and we will not be able to ever do Mm, is to randomise groups of people from zero 50 milligrams, 100, 150, 200. And they obviously can't go more than that unless people were doing it of their own volition against advice because then there's a potential harm. So pregnancy populations are nearly impossible to study because any any small risk, it's not going to get through ethics and no one's going to sign up to do it if there's a potential risk to you or the baby. So we can only do it retrospective. So ask about how much caffeine was consumed during pregnancy or pre-pregnancy or post-pregnancy or whatever so it's a tricky one I sit in the camp of I still still stick to the less than 200 milligrams if a client says no 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 I really want to just try and cut it out or go go decaf I support them with that um I don't think it's a bad thing to do um but I also don't necessarily think it's absolutely necessary to go zero caffeine unless you have some other risk factors again I'm talking about the average healthy pregnant person doesn't need to worry too much about that stick to the two, zero to 200 wonderful summary i will continue to have my half or quarter, quarter strength and the other day when we were off on our baby mood um david went in and ordered our coffees from the shop and i sat outside i just didn't have to put my mask on to go inside after walking it's really hard to breathe yeah. <laughs> when you're pregnant yeah. and um he said to the um because i normally get a medium which is two standard shots so i'll get a quarter strength which is half a shot and he said could i have a quarter strength you know soy cappuccino which is what i drink and the the barista looked at him and went you know, mate, we have decaf. And he was like, no, no, trust me, my wife will know. <laughs> so I'll stick to my quarter strength. <laughs> but I must be such a pain for all the baristas. The baristas must be thinking, who is this person? I know, but in all fairness. <laughs> Just drink decaf. It wasn't like extra hot, like extra foam, more chocolate, a little bit of caramel syrup. I was like, I'm just asking for one or two little things. Yeah. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, I can tell, like, I need that half a shot, please. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> wonderful. Well, I think that that's a wonderful um, summary of the current guidelines and recommendations in terms of food safety. Are there any, I guess, like apps or resources you would recommend? Because obviously that like there are, what, probably thousands of different foods and food products and that sort of thing out there mm. where we can't possibly ever cover them all. No. Are there any good apps or resources that you would recommend from a food safety and pregnancy perspective, either Australian or worldwide? Honestly, the best place to start is your local food authority website and searching for their pregnancy food safety guidelines as a start point because that's going to be the most relevant to you and has to kind of be kept up to date. Mm -hmm. And then, honestly, I don't know of any, like even in preparation for this podcast, I went and checked different things and there is so much inconsistency even between, you know, obstetricians blog posts and other dietitians blog posts and all that stuff so the best way to get up-to-date information is going to have a conversation with your doctor and or your prenatal dietitian um, and just asking those questions it is in actually our Australian and New Zealand care guidelines for every pregnant woman to see a dietitian it's not part of like what's funded for pregnancy but if you can swing it from a financial standpoint, I would just say at least an appointment per trimester is kind of what is I consider the bare minimum if we're talking about educating you and optimising the health of the pregnancy for both you and baby. And it is a decent number of days in that 1,000-day period to, you know, improve the potential future health of your baby for for their life. So it's, it's worth the investment. So 
Personally, I think the best resources are that local food authority website and your individual healthcare provider who's keeping up to date with these things and has a special interest in this area. They're your best go-to things. Everything else I've come across and I actually did a research project on this in a different topic. It was about pregnancy weight gain, not pregnancy food safety. But I downloaded, this was a few years ago, 350 or something pregnancy apps from the app store and I had to compare all of them to see if there was consistency in what they were saying about how much weight um, women should be aiming to gain in pregnancy and whether they were consistent with the Institute of Medicine which is our international guideline and the inconsistency was so bad like it was terrible Um, so just going off what I know about that (laughs) I would hazard a guess and say the food safety information on apps may be similar. That's very funny because even just I mentioned that app that I was using to like, you know, track the baby's progress. And I just like to sort of keep a track for myself, like what um, what week I'm in or what trimester I'm in and that sort yeah. of thing and get a general guide to, you know, how big Bub is or that sort of thing. Yeah. Like I have two apps on my phone and both apps say a different like size, just even by a couple of like centimetres. So it says the yep. length and the weight, even both of those two apps that I have. So I don't pay too much attention to it, but yep. I sort of like to now I'm like, oh, baby's the size of a cabbage this week or yeah. whatever it is. Like I think it's a bit of fun, yep. but I'm definitely taking it with a grain of salt because even just between the two apps that I have there's a lot of inconsistencies as well so funny that you mentioned that (laughs) yeah and talking about weight gain that's Mm. probably another topic that I'd really love to dive into quickly Mm. um what are the recommendations for healthy weight gain in pregnancy in the first trimester the second trimester and the third trimester and you know I think we all know the answer to this and the answer is I think no is that age-old advice where you should be eating for two like now you're pregnant you need to eat a lot more you need to have double the portions as two of you um what is the advice around healthy weight gain because I think it is very dependent on where we're starting our pregnancy from whether we're underweight of a healthy weight or whether we're considered you know in a larger body as well yeah exactly so the key things to remember is that your start point is what's going to determine which bracket of gestational weight gain is considered ideal or healthy for you. Mm-hmm. So again, this is where a prenatal dietitian and or your doctor comes in, is having a conversation about that upfront. We actually know that women who are informed about when and how they should be gaining weight based on their unique circumstances are actually far more likely to stay in those guidelines. And most pregnant women aren't having this conversation because their practitioner feels uncomfortable talking about weight. And that's actually then doing both mum, baby and the practitioner a disservice in terms of care. So really important things are, depends on your preconception BMI, first trimester, wherever it goes kind of vibe. So in terms of The goal is to stay plus or minus two kilos and or weight neutral in that first trimester unless you're starting with underweight. Then usually we're aiming for a little bit more if we can, if symptoms allow. Very, very driven by symptoms. Mm. Some people will be so sick that they lose a little bit of weight. A little bit is okay. Once we're talking about five, three to six percent of your total weight being lost, that's time to go to the doctor because um, it might be a little bit of a red flag for some more significant nausea. That isn't just your classic quote-unquote pregnancy morning sickness, which is never in the morning <laughs> um, <laughs> for most people. Um, but really we're talking about weight gain starting to occur from 12 weeks onwards. Averages out for people in underweight or 
healthy weight categories at about half a kilo per week and people in larger bodies were talking about around 300 grams per week. Again, some circumstances, it might be different. Um, There isn't much guideline for people with BMIs above 35, above 40, about about 45. You don't have good guidelines. If you're pregnant with twins, it's completely different. Um, And, you know, if if we know you're going to have, you know, there's some risk for really early birth or something like that, we might be aiming to get weight on faster mm-hmm. so that baby's bigger once you know there's all these different factors what's important to note is at the end of the day most pregnant women are going to be giving birth to a baby that ranges in weight from three to four kilos then you've got your placenta which is about 500 to 700 grams you've got your boobs which are usually about 500 grams if not more you've got your amniotic fluid which is up to 1.5 kilos your uterus can grow up to 1.6 kilos your extra blood volume 1.5 kilograms fat stores laid down for breastfeeding 2.5 to 3.5 and that's really where if you're entering pregnancy with more or less body fat that's where we need to modify accordingly particularly Um, and then you've also got your fluid retention particularly towards the end of Mm 1.5 Eating for two, big old myth. First trimester, like I said, same as preconception in terms of energy requirements, subtract those food safety foods. Start of the second trimester, we're looking at an additional about 350 calories per day if you're a calorie person. Um, And in the third trimester, it rises a little bit above 450 calories per day and then breastfeeding is 500 calories. Now that's not on top of each other as in, plus 350 on preconception, plus 450 on preconception, plus 500 on preconception. So if the average person is having 1,800 or 2,000 calories a day, you can see as a percentage it's nowhere near double. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's for most people it's not even near a quarter. Yeah. So it's an extra snack. It's a little bit extra at your dinner. It's, you know, a dessert. It's something. It's a something extra. Um, and most people's appetite is going to guide them towards that without too much thinking mm-hmm. but sometimes monitoring weight if you think that you're not quite on the right track or doing a food diary or talking to a prenatal dietitian can help you if you feel like oh maybe I'm overshooting it maybe I'm undershooting it all those kinds of things we know that over and undershooting is associated with different pregnancy and birth outcomes so those guidelines are extremely good like I would say pretty accurate in terms of like using them every day in my practice pretty accurate people that going way above and way below tend to sit in those higher risk groups for sure and I get a lot of um, DMs. I think just, you know, being pregnant, obviously I don't work in this area, so I like to remind people this isn't my specialty. Yeah. You definitely need to go and see someone like Steph. Yeah. But a lot of people have been asking me, like, how much weight have you gained so far? Which I, I haven't actually told anyone because I just feel like that's such a personal thing and I'm so different to, like, so many other different people. So I really don't think we can compare ourselves from no. that perspective. But I do get a lot of women who are saying to me, oh, my goodness, I just found out I'm pregnant but I've been trying to lose weight. Is it okay, you know, in the first couple of weeks or the first few months if I continue to lose weight and I've always sort of said no like pregnancy is not the time that we should be aiming for weight loss um it's just not about you know that sort of vanity like it's really about creating and growing a safe baby isn't it Mm -hmm. but is it recommended if you are in those larger bodies in those larger BMI categories healthier types of weight loss in pregnancy or is it more just that we recommend sort of that weight stability as much as possible it's so it's way too individualized because you know what what people may think is they think is appropriate 
it applies to them in this context. It may not be and vice versa. Mm. Um, there are ways that you can create weight stability and or some fat loss whilst baby weight is being gained in a healthy way with monitoring, with a dietitian, with an OB. And I'm not talking like you see a dietitian once and see a buy. I'm talking about you're seeing a dietitian every month mm. and you're actually quite closely working together. Um, it can be done and it can be done safely, but I don't think it would be the aim. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. You were not aiming for that, but it can happen. Um, and, you know, there are certain circumstances where that does happen, where it is certainly not the aim, such as hyperemesis. There's lots of different clinical scenarios where this can happen. Mm. Um and, you know, we just, as long as, you know, we're looking at baby's growth, we're looking at how mum's doing, we're looking at what the obstetrician's seeing, what the ultrasound techs are seeing, what the blood work's looking like, we factor all those things in um, and we make decisions based on that and also what you're eating. Like you could be eating really, really well. And so as a result, you're eating better in pregnancy from a nutrition, nutrition perspective and your energy intake has dropped for example. Mm. So sometimes just those little things are important to keep in mind, but certainly wouldn't be something that I would tell people to be gunning for when pregnant. Um, I would say at a minimum, we're talking about weight stability. Um, usually the new guidelines are starting to come out around certain BMI groups being, uh, you know, a healthy gestational weight gain being zero to five kilos. So zero is the minimum. They're not showing anything less than that. I think that's a great summary. And as you said, just stresses the importance of um, working one-on-one with a specialist dietitian in this area because it's just not the time to be doing any sort of crash dieting or detoxing or restricting nope. or that sort of thing because there are so many nutrients. Intermittent fasting. Exactly. There are so many nutrients that we need more of in pregnancy and it's it's hard enough to get them in with, with all the symptoms that come with the first trimester. And for some women, they go right through the entire pregnancy. Exactly. Great. On the same page there. Yeah. And lastly, Steph, to end on a positive note for all of our listeners who yes. um, may be listening to this and just, you know, soaking up all of the knowledge, but thinking, you know, I'm not pregnant yet or we're trying to conceive or, you know, we're on our journey. Yeah. What about fertility nutrition? What are your top one to two tips to boost um, fertility nutrition for those ladies and those families that are trying to have their bubbies but aren't, aren't pregnant yet? I think the two, like to like distill it down to one or two things, the two things are eat oily fish and or seafood at least twice per week. That will improve both egg and sperm health over a period of three to six months and also helps with the implantation support. And fruit and veggies, be really colourful, lots of antioxidants on your plate, fibre. That's really, really important when it comes to both egg and sperm quality as well. And it will get you into a good habit for when your time comes in terms of pregnancy as well. And I often find it really eases a little bit of anxiety in that first trimester when you're like, wow, I look like a bowl of pasta at this point because I've eaten so much pasta. <laughs> um, and I always, you know, the clients that work with me from preconception, I'm like, just think back to all those colours and stuff that you're eating before. It's it's really carrying you through now. They're like, I'm so <laughs> glad I did that. <laughs> Looking back at it now, I'm so glad I paid attention because that is really reassuring. Um, so, yeah, it's never too early to start focusing on your nutrition when it comes to preconception and pregnancy health. I love that. And really quick question. Mm. Um, I always advocate, of course, food first, just like you, but I know some people just genuinely don't like fish and salmon or yep. for you know ethical reasons, whatnot, choose not to eat it. Mm. Is supplementation in that area okay if you're not somebody who does eat fish and salmon? Yeah. I would consult your healthcare provider about a specific recommendation or anything on the 
pharmacy shelf might be suitable if you're trying to conceive or pregnant. I'm very, very picky when I look at these things for clients. I'm looking at mercury testing. I'm looking at contaminants. I'm looking at flavor profiles. I'm looking at dosage. I'm looking at ratios. It's not as simple as picking up a fish oil from the chemist and being on your way. So please, like, don't self-prescribe really important. All right. Um, Steph, you have been an absolute gem in providing us with all of your knowledge and wisdom today. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to be knocking down your door for referrals. So please (laughs) let us know where can we follow you on social media? How can our listeners get in touch and work with you? And do you accept um, clients worldwide or are you just Australian based at the moment? Yeah. So you can come and follow us on Instagram. It's the underscore dietologist. It's myself and Kaylee, who is our team dietitian and we're growing the team so we'll have more availability soon Um, and you can reach out to us via our website thedietologist.com.au and we do see clients from all over the world um, and all across Australia and we absolutely love it's, it's sometimes a bit of a challenge actually when it comes to pregnancy and supplements and trying to find the right thing for people overseas but it's it's a fun challenge for us we really enjoy it and learning about different places in the world and um what the food supply and supplement supply is like so yes we do all that for you <laughs> wonderful and um give your own podcast a plug as well if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about fertility and pregnancy nutrition you've got your own podcast as well don't you yeah i almost forgot thanks for that <laughs> it's called fertility friendly food and we do a combination of solo episodes which is just me and also interviews um, with different experts all around preconception and a little bit of pregnancy nutrition and health as well wonderful and i'll make sure i link everything in the show notes for our listeners so thank you again steph for joining us on the show today it's been a pleasure thanks so much leanne